0: Welcome to Lost Words. My name is Abraham. 2020 has been a remarkable year, to say the least. Over here in Britain, we started the year with the talk of Brexit and all the ramifications that may or may not bring to our economy and to our lives. And then we were hit with the coronavirus, COVID-19, and Covid's been strange for everybody. We've had to basically shut down the economy, shut ourselves in our houses, we've relied on the NHS, we've opened our hearts as a nation, and we've tried to win through, tried to persevere, and it's been hard. I think it's been hard for most people, if not everybody. However, the story gets complicated because Across the water, our cousins in America are having similar difficulties. They're suffering the effects of COVID just as much as we are, maybe more. And then a tragic thing occurred. George Floyd was murdered while in police custody. Sadly, in America, for a black man, this isn't an unusual occurrence. What made it spectacular was it was caught in the film. What captivated the world was the fact that the man, George Floyd, had a knee placed on his neck for eight minutes. And this sparked the world, this lit, uh, a different type of anger that maybe hadn't necessarily been noticed by a lot of people before. And it could have been that most of the world was in lockdown. It could have been the graphic nature of that video. Whatever it was, the world woke up to the plight of a lot of black people. And protests began. They began around America and this spread to Europe and to Asia and in Africa and South America and Australia and and something something happened in the world. A dialogue began and A dialogue that necessarily wouldn't have been there had it not been for all the ingredients that had been slowly building up over the years and all the extra special ingredients It was 2020. And now the media attention has turned squarely to us. Minorities in the developed world, and black people specifically. We were taking this moment and this platform to say what we've been thinking and what we've been feeling and what we've been experiencing for a long time. A lot of my white friends messaged me and started speaking to me about things they have never asked before. Maybe they didn't know, maybe they didn't understand, or maybe they just weren't aware. Either way, it was a chance for me to tell my story to them and tell people how I felt. When I grew up in Scotland, being black is an unusual experience. When you travel around, people are a bit surprised that black people exist in Scotland. We do exist. We have strange accents. But even in Scotland, we are unusual. And what's funny, when I was growing up, I knew of other black families here, but at the same time I felt like I was the only one and so now we have this opportunity I felt emboldened to seek out some of those stories of black people and minorities who have had to live through this and what their stories are because some of these people are absolutely amazing and we need to learn about these stories if we want to move forward and so I started this podcast I want to interview as many people as I can to get their experiences. I want to hear their stories, the good and the bad. I want to hear their hopes for the future. And I want to take that as an opportunity for me to grow, for me to learn, and to inspire me. I've often said that growing up in Scotland is like a cocoa pop and a bowl of milk. And I think what happens is that that cocoa pop either starts to colour the waters around it or it becomes bleached or maybe it's a bit of both but i do know my experiences aren't the same as everybody else's which leads me to my first guest in act one of our show act one in the moment of waking so my first guest is sakai manchachi sakai is a visual artist who's based in dundee in scotland She was born in Zimbabwe and moved to Glasgow. To start with that, so what I was going to say is um, so thank you so much for agreeing to, to speak to me and I wanted to just kind of ask you a little bit about your background. So tell me where you're from and how did you end up in Scotland?
1: Um, so yeah, I, I'm actually originally from Zimbabwe, I was born in Harare and um, it was in 1989 and I moved to Glasgow um, when I was four years old mm-hmm. um, and it was basically, my dad was already living in Scotland and so he came back from Scotland from, from Harare and took back to Glasgow. So I moved in with him and his wife, who's my mum, and my uh, sister. Um, And we just, yeah, lived in Glasgow for, yeah, my whole life, basically. And I would go back to Zimbabwe, but not often, like maybe like once a year up to the age of about 12. And then we stopped going back and I didn't go back again until about, I think it was about 2013. Mm-hmm. I went back so I'd had like a, a hiatus of 17 or something, 18 years of not being home uh, which is really sad but I'm really glad that I did eventually go back and I've, I'm obsessed with Zimbabwe, I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world potentially the most beautiful place in the world but I'm from Scotland as well so I can't really say that because Very controversial, huh? Very controversial because <laughs> they're the most beautiful countries in the world Okay, yeah, I think most people <laughs> will be okay with that <laughs> So yeah, um, obviously growing up in Glasgow, um, I kind of experienced being quite isolated as a black person. I was like one of the only black people in my area. Like my sister was also; she was biracial. She's, um, her dad is half Nigerian, is Nigerian so she's like, she's half Nigerian, and she um, she experienced a lot of racism when she went to school. She had had teachers be racist to her, etc. So when I was like growing up, I was ten years younger than her, and I was experiencing a little bit less—not not a whole lot less, but just a little bit less than her. So you
0: had like coke version of racism. You had diet coke.
1: I had the diet coke. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, it was still pretty horrendous, but <laughs> um, I didn't have the, I didn't have teachers being out and out fully racist to me, like, um, but they were. You know the microaggressions were there. I definitely do. I did remember, like, teachers touching my hair a lot and stuff like that as well, which
0: was really. Yeah. How did you feel about it? So at the time, looking back, when people touched your hair, did you did you have a problem with it? Was it was it normal, or were you just get off my hair? It took me a while to get this done. You're messing it up, or was it you appreciated what it was at the time, and you uncomfortable?
1: Um, It wasn't just my hair, weirdly. It was my skin as well. Mm -hmm. I actually have this weird thing of, like, looking back at being, like, five, six, seven years old, and a lot of people just kept stroking my face and going on about how soft it was. Um, And I think that, like, if you think about it now, how weird is that, like, that a child was having to contend with that, and they were the only one who was having to contend with that. So I was watching... Um, other children not have that experience of constantly having, like, adults and other children, like, kind of play with them. Like, they were not, like, like there was something strange or different, like they were a doll or something.
0: Yeah, like almost like a toy or something to something to behold.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I frequently had to contend with the fact that people would find me strange, like they would find something uh Interesting or intriguing about me, um, from the moment they met me, and so yeah, I th- I think that being outnumbered and being also like um a spectacle, essentially, mm-hmm. um, it, it did affect me as a kid because like you just feel very, I don't know what the word is even. It was just it was just incredibly uncomfortable, and and I think that you know, the anxiety that I know I have now as an adult, like, I know that much of it probably stems from, like, just that feeling of eyes on you and, like, hands on you and people being quite, um, and people just staring, you know. They, I mean, they would stare at me. Me and my mum, we'd go out to the shops and my mum's white, so people would just stare the whole time. They just couldn't get, wrap their heads around it at all and, I'd say, Mum! <laughs> and they'd, like, literally, people would, like, whip their heads around and practically give themselves whiplash. when um, we call my mum, mom, mom. Mum. So, yeah, I, I feel like that being the only one thing definitely affected me a lot. And as I grew up, I kind of, you know, there was lots of different ways that I dealt with it. Like, I would... I remember when I was a teenager, one of the, the uh, coping mechanisms that I put into place was um, mocking myself first, which mm-hmm. a lot of other people do. Yeah. Um, so making racist jokes about myself before anybody else could uh, was my way of kind of coping. Um, what sort of jokes would you make? Oh, just really stupid stuff. Like I remember going camping once with a group of friends. I was like 16, 17. We were in a tent in the dark and... Uh, I was like oh the only thing you can see is my teeth (laughs) you know shit like that but it wasn't sorry it's for there but stuff like that that wasn't um wasn't necessary and like i guess did you find it funny though i think i i I think i definitely did find a lot of things funny like as in like i i'm from glasgow so the banter was always there like we we know we slag each other off and that's how we make friends with each other and you slag off the thing that makes someone stand out is Mm -hmm. kind of like what what we do and so because I was the black one I was small and black and a girl and I was a girl who was a tomboy and dressed up like more like yeah boyish as they would call it and I would hang out with boys all the time and so it was just All of that, like, oh, you're one of the lads and that stuff. And I was just in that kind of space all the time. Almost asking for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And also just being, I remember there was a time when, I don't know if you remember Jackass.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember Jackass. (laughs) (laughs) I remember (laughs) Jackass doing
1: Jackass videos. Constantly. (laughs) Constantly. And I was like, the one, holding the camera. And uh, no, I wasn't allowed to jump in any hedges or anything. I was... I was, like, one of the boys, but I wasn't actually allowed to, like, do any of the boyish stuff, really. I was supposed to just be there to... Um, do you think that was them trying to protect you? Yeah, I think it, it definitely was. Like, it, but no, it was unspoken. <laughs> <laughs> it was, like, them thinking that that's what they were supposed to do, um, but really they were just not letting me be, like, not letting me actually properly be involved. And, um, yeah, and I, I took a sharp turn towards... Um, my um my fellow girl, female, women <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at about 17, because uh, it was just like, oh yeah, this isn't actually a thing that is going to be from being gendered at all. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's interesting that all the games you play to try to fit in in some way or to make sense of the world and make sense of the way that people are treating you and um,
0: but it's interesting you talk about fitting in and, and you're talking about making fun of being black I suppose a question I would have would be do you think making fun of differences sometimes can make it easier for people to, to relate or to ironically enough to fit in because if, if everyone has differences that's a common ground by itself without going into those differences and so if someone's got red hair or if someone is bigger than everyone else or someone's really skinny if someone's black someone's brown if you were being prejudiced and 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 being hurtful about those things that's one thing but when you're when the own person is making fun of it um in a group where everyone can make fun of their own little differences do you you do you have a problem with that, or do you think that's kind of how we find our feet?
1: I think it's maybe how we find our feet in Glasgow. Yeah. and you, know, I, I feel like that's the Glasgow way of, of fitting in, is being prepared to laugh at yourself. You can't take things too seriously in Glasgow, it just isn't allowed. And, well, it wasn't allowed, I think that the, the banner died a few years ago, I don't know when it happened, but it's deceased. Yeah, it
0: just went away one day. And it's like, you just left a bunch of really tough people who were waiting for jokes and then there were no jokes left. You're like,
1: damn. Yeah, and it was funny because actually when I moved to Dundee to study, the first year that I was here, I was annoying everybody. I was really upsetting a lot of people. So I was just doing my usual basketball banter at them, And they were like, why are you slagging me off? Like, I thought we were friends.
0: <laughs> so the press... The oppressed becomes the oppressor.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I was like, "All oh, right, okay, so I'm not allowed to do this anymore." So I had to like unlearn that behavior quite quickly in order to fit in in Dundee. It wasn't just Dundonians, This is like people from like other parts of the, the country who were studying at our school. It wasn't like normal to, to mm-hmm. do that in Edinburgh. It wasn't normal to do that in Dundee. It wasn't normal to do that in parts of England. It was it's only normal in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like um, yeah then quite quickly that that wasn't acceptable and uh, but then it liberated me because I didn't have to slide myself off anymore and um, you know and and I guess the things that that were frustrating at school was that you never knew when someone was going to throw racism at you and um, people would be quite nice and everything was going well um, and if you had like a disagreement with someone like they could quite quickly and quite sharply decide that that's when they were going to say the racist thing. Yep. So you could be friends with people for years and then have them just turn around and and call you a black, whatever. And um, that was really frustrating, I think. But you never knew really where you stood with people, and um, you never knew really how safe you were with people. Mm -hmm. and and obviously it's still like that to this day but like I just, I've learned now who's my safe people and who's who's not and in the last three to five, well probably just last three years I've started to build um, relationships with other black people in Scotland and that's really changed everything for me. Okay.
0: It's funny you talked about um being able to reinvent yourself when you went to university because you didn't have to make fun of yourself. One of the things I found was I had lots of different masks that I wore, and I wore the, I had the mask that I wore when I was at school. I spent a lot of time in the States and in London growing up, and so I had the mask when I was in America, I had the London mask, I had the mask when I was at home, and then when I went back to Sierra Leone, I had that mask. And it was exhausting, and you never got a chance to be yourself, but at one point you didn't know what yourself was because you were trying really hard to fit in Um, so it sounds a bit like going to university was a bit liberating for you
1: it was in a way because i i didn't have to deal with so many of the things that were that made life difficult when i was in Glasgow. obviously like the um i wouldn't even say it was like really really difficult it was just a bit annoying Mm-hmm. And it, you know what I mean? It was like it was a, just a constant annoyance, like a constant, like low level, just like anxiety about like how to interact with people. And then when I was in Dundee, because I realised that it was actually hurting people's feelings, I, I quite quickly stopped doing it. And then. Um, Learned that people could just be nice to each other and that was okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> i haven't really giving Glasgow a bad rap, but it's just true. We we grew up just slagging each other, and and like it just wasn't the same when I was in Dundee. Maybe people from Dundee would be like, well, we slag each other off too," but I, that wasn't my experience when I went to uni. Um, and I guess like meeting so many different people from other parts of the world, well not parts of the world, but parts of the country, really in the courses that I was in. So it was art school and then obviously the art school was part of the university. So you could be part of the art school and just never really speak to anyone at the university or you could jump back and forth and be kind of involved with the people as well. And I was in halls at first and the first year. And in that first year, I met quite a lot of people from the university side of things. And joined some of the, um, what do you call them, the uni, uh, Oregon, the faculty? No, like the. Oh, the societies. That was it. I joined some of the universities and um, that helped a lot as well because obviously there was more potential to meet black people. I didn't join the African Caribbean Society, which doesn't even make any sense. Was and there I, one in the uni? Yeah, there was one in the uni. There was one in both unis. There's one in Navarrete and one in University of Dundee, I think. And I didn't join either. And I was just like, what was that? What's <laughs> stupid? No? But um, did you not
0: do it because you just thought it was a bit obvious? You didn't want to? Or did you just not think about doing it at the
1: time? weird stuff. Like, I, I, I okay, I'm, I'm one of those people who, I'm very, like, I'm myself and I don't need to be like everybody else right? So I grew up like that I was like always like I just do my own thing. I like rock music so I'm not like other black people. I'm well uh, are well aware of how stupid that was but like now <laughs> but at the time that's the way that I was and I, and I saw like building relationships with other black people just on the basis of our both being black wasn't sincere in my mind. and mm-hmm. um, I wanted to be friends with people because we got on with each other we had the same values, we had the same interests and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, in hindsight, like, you could have found out that you had the same interests and the same values as the other black people if you just tried, um, is really what I say to uh, teenage me.
0: It's um, a hard decision. I mean, are, are you, it's, it's so hard. For example, lots of people have talked about if they are in a group of friends and there happen to be two black people and one, black, and one of them's male, one of them's female, and everyone expects those two people to get together. This, yeah. And they think, oh, you guys should get together because you're black. Well, no. For, just because you share colour someone doesn't mean that you're going to be friends with someone. And yeah. so when I ask the question, why didn't you, it does sound a bit accusatory, but it's more, it is genuine... Just genuine interest as to why not. Um, well,
1: there was a really big reason, and I think that it's I don't want to upset anyone, but the reality is that I um I was I'm not religious. So um whenever I had tried to make friends with black people when I was younger, when I was much younger, um, they would always try to get me to go to church and they would always get me to try to try to talk me into believing in in God and believing in Jesus and going to church and that was always like an issue for me because I was like I don't need to believe in God in order to be friends with you but if that's what you're kind of um, if that's important to you that I do that then I won't be able to be friends with you you know and I would have that issue come up again and again like my my parents would like, like oh you go play with such and such and then we'd find very quickly that they didn't want to play with me because they saw me as a sinner because I didn't believe in God, and I'd just be like right well that judgment is already too much for me Mm. um and also like I am bi as well so like that used to become it became even worse like when it came down to like are are people going to see me as someone that's just wrong from the get-go because um i'm not straight etc so yeah it was just that like i i can't really be put in that position uh, but in over the years like i found that like i when i have made friends with black people most of the people that i just like ended up being friends with they, they were not religious either and it was just this weird thing of like i made this biased misconception and i guess it was probably like an uh what's it called like a kind of From the experiences that I had with like one or two black people, I generalized all of us as being like potentially like that. And I've met other religious black people who are like Muslim or Christian who don't care if I believe. But you know, those one or two people that I met when I was young became the metric for like everybody, and that's kind of how we internalize racism ourselves because we basically tar each other with the same brushes about things that are maybe not true. Um, Interesting
0: to hear that because that preconditioning happens to so many people. Uh, and I think a lot of racism that I've experienced is is a direct result of that sort of preconditioning. So something will happen with one particular race or one particular or group people from a particular group. And then they would be targeted that brush, and which is really unfair because if everyone did that, literally people would be living in isolation because mm-hmm. you make that, you can make that, that that jump or that assertion about anything. It can be anyone with blue eyes, anyone with blonde hair, anybody above six foot, anyone below five foot. Just you can just start making things up. It's mm-hmm. just that race is a very easy thing to lean on. So it's a simple crutch for people. And, you know, and
1: um problem for us as well because then like you need to be like the perfect black person at all times because you're representing all black people everywhere you go even exactly. though it's not actually the truth but it feels like you've got to yeah. when you're in a job you've got to try and not like you know like you have to just try your best to not do the wrong thing okay. because it's not just you that's on trial now like it's like the
0: whole race <laughs> exactly.
1: Maybe if, if, so, if, if a black person will never be employed by that that um company again because you fucked up.
0: No, it's so true, and, and you know the thing is as well for you. I mean, you, I suppose, end up ticking lots of boxes. You're female, you're black, you're by, you live in Scotland. You want to add a couple more boxes to make your life more difficult. <laughs>
1: I'm an artist, you're so an artist. So it's like a come on, career. Um,
0: if you, yeah. every time you you go for credit or you go to the bank, is there just like a siren that just rings for you? <laughs> like well,
1: what are you trying to do exactly? Trying to make your life impossible? Okay, great. And, and and that leads me to
0: to obvious question: What what brought you to to art? To, to was it that you felt that you had to live out as someone who's not. In any any shape or form, has any creativity about me. I, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Um, I can't draw. I can't sing. I don't think I can act. Um, I can dance, and that's about it. <laughs> what 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 brought you to art, or or how did you fall into that?
1: Well, it was arts like probably the earliest thing. So it goes way 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 back. And it was actually that my dad loved music and he wanted me to be a musician because he didn't get to be a musician, he was young and he wanted to live vicariously so through his child so he <laughs> he had me learn piano, guitar and then like eventually when I was in high school I drums but like he was just like from about four or five years old I had a keyboard and at about six years old he bought me a piano and I had piano lessons like every every single week and I did piano practice like every single day and um, and I, so I was like very musical, I love singing, and um, I love the, theatrical stuff as well. I used to watch a lot of um, musicals and I used to sing along to them. And every time any any aunties or uncles came to visit, I would be like, I'm performing for you. So I'd get up and I'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there'd be like, there's no choice. They had to sit there and, and just watch me screaming at the top of my lungs. Um singing like really like old show (laughs) tunes and so that was and I would do it on the bus as well my mum would take me out with her of course that's another reason why people were staring like people stared because I was also singing at the top of my (laughs) lungs everywhere I went and my mum couldn't contain me she couldn't get me to stop doing that and
0: but did you think people were gonna look at you anyway so you might as well put on the show
1: yeah, I think that might have been maybe, like, another coping mechanism, like a really, you know, child's way of, like, handling a situation. Um, and I also, um, so, yeah, the music thing and being really interested in, like, theatre and stuff, you know, like, from a young age. My parents used to take me to the theatre as well, which was amazing. Um, and, um, yeah, and then writing, I started to write. Poetry and short stories from a really young age as well and it was just like my way of expressing myself and getting things out. I was quite a stressed child so I was just always having an outlet and trying to have an outlet Um, and then um, yeah like art was funny because like visual art as in like painting and drawing and all that kind of stuff came a little bit later. I was planning on becoming a writer at nine years old, I declared to my dad, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to write books. <laughs> and he was like, okay, so, we'll, well, we need to do something about that then, because you need to be able to actually consistently write, and you need to be able to hit deadlines, because he was very serious. And so he was like, right, so every month, you're going to have to write me a short story, a poem, or uh, uh, an essay every time we go on holiday you're going to have to write an essay about the holiday or a short story about like some of the things that motifs from the place we went and all that stuff so I was like basically I had school I had piano and then I had all this other stuff like writing and everything and it was always like creative stuff that I was interested in um, and in high school I started getting really into art like um, I started drawing self-portraits all the time and then you know like the magazines like we, like uh, I think it's like Bliss and stuff like, mm-hmm. the main, like <laughs> girls' new mag- teenage
0: girl magazines. I, I, I'm not <laughs> too familiar with many teenage girls magazines uh, I've yeah cross my desk from time to time growing up but uh, I don't think I could really list any off for you if I'm honest.
1: Well I used to have sugar. I think it's Sugar and Bliss and uh, you know you'd get like little like, little lipstick, like, free lipstick and, like, free, like, with it and all that. It was ridiculous. But I didn't read them. I just opened them up, found a picture of whichever model I wanted to draw, and I would just draw them. And um, so I did that for a wee while. And then I started putting um, body paint on. Uh, I, I started just playing around with makeup and stuff and playing with my hair and putting body paint on. And then I started taking photos of myself with body paint on. And I went to school with like one day with like um, some of these pictures and I showed them to my art teacher. And, and he was like, oh, that's okay. And then he brought me a book of Cindy Sherman's work. And he was like, do you, do you see this? This is art you're doing. And I was like, what? Because obviously at the time, I, I didn't consider what I was doing art, what I was just playing around. But I wanted to show him because I thought it was interesting. And I thought, like, you know you should see that i was i don't know maybe part of me knew innately that it was art but i felt like it was like a light bulb moment when you showed me cindy sherman's work um and she um she was really inspirational to me and then from that point on that was what i was kind of doing most of, mostly so i was taking photos of myself with body paint on and then i would draw those painting I'd draw those pictures paint those pictures and then create like my final piece would have like lots of different like illustrative um, motifs on top of it as well so it's quite layered um, and then um, I guess like the rest of school became a bit of a blur like I only wanted to be in the art department I didn't want to do anything else mm-hmm. um, and I remember getting into like fifth year and just tanking everything because um, I-, I did really really well in school from like you know primary school all the way through to the end but in fifth year I had my dad was in like you have to become a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer or something like that and you have to you have to you have to and he was like but you have to be an artist like my whole life <laughs> and now <laughs> I have to do this thing that has no bearing on anything that I'm interested in whatsoever so he was a bit
0: surprised when you are saying dad I'm maybe an artist and he's like what where did that come from you're going to be you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer and you're just is you missed the trick You I'm clearly an artist
1: I mean you like, encouraged me to be an artist since what <laughs> like you literally got me music lessons and you know uh, encouraged my writing and now now this is not okay Um but you really like you're going to be a dentist and I think the, the funniest thing is that he went to the dentist one he was going to the dentist one day and he missed the appointment and he got given a like yeah, he got given a, a, a charge for missing the appointment. And he said, "That's it. You're going to be a dentist because these people don't. They don't even need to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> they
0: just make money when you don't turn up.
1: <laughs> yeah, make money when you don't turn up. They make money like when you when you do turn up. So there's no there's no losses." So he was like, "Yeah, doctor, doctor would be better, but dentist. If you want to be rich, just go be a dentist. I don't want to be rich. Like that was never my MO. Like I was, me, you
0: know." But do you think that's a bit of African parent heritage, where your parents look at certain professions and say you should go off and become this, and and even. Even to your own detriment, you should become this. And it's funny because it sounds like your dad was really supportive. Your school was supportive. From the sounds of it, you were going to be an artist. You were putting paint on your face. And for listeners who haven't seen some of your work, you're still doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, It was quite clear that's where you're going. And then at the last minute to say, but you're not going to be this thing I wanted you to be, even though I've supported you this other way. Do you think that was him trying to, that was his programming from such a long time ago where you come over here Mm -hmm. and I think for many African children you were told when you were a kid you're going to become a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer or an accountant or or maybe a teacher as well and that's about it you're not allowed to be anything else.
1: The artiest thing you could possibly do is become an architect yeah because you're okay. at school for okay.
0: what, seven years so that's okay but like, you're at school for seven years so they can tell everyone oh my kid's at school for seven years they're coming to be an architect and that's fantastic
1: yeah
0: and um, and when you when you applied to to art school by that point did you come around or was there still a bit of resistance i
1: i did a few things it was i was just i don't know i think back and i'm like what? what was I up to? Like, imagine in this as an African child doing this. Um, I failed all my exams in fifth year on purpose. Wow. <laughs> like, I just tanked it. Like, that's not I even mean, I tanked it. Like, I just didn't. I remember going into school and just being like, I'm not going to, tr- I can't, tr- I can't try because if I try, I will pass. If I pass, I'll have to be a dentist or a doctor or whatever. I can't, like, just totally like disobey my, my father's wishes. But what I can do is I can make it impossible for me to ever be a doctor or a dentist. So I didn't try. And I, thought, I remember being really, really, really disappointed with myself at the end because I then just had those marks, you know? I just had that lack of, um, like effort, like in front of my face. And I remember being really, really depressed about it. And um, the following year I went back in sixth year and I redeemed myself because what I did was, like, I took arts and uh, psychology and modern studies. Yeah, arts. Yeah. And, and one other class. No, just the three. Just the three. And I've, I have passed them all, like, you know, got A and, like, A's and all of them. A's and B's. Um, and I was, like, so I can, I can go to art school now because art school doesn't need five A's. Art school just needs a really good portfolio and, sorry, English as well. And it needs English. Right, okay. That's all you need, a really good portfolio English. And obviously your art class has to be good. So I had an A in Advanced Art Art. I had two other B's and I had my English class as well. And then I had um, a portfolio. And that was all I needed to get into art school. I applied for art school. And then um, I, it was weird, I, I applied for Edinburgh and Dundee and then I took Dundee out at the last minute for some weird reason, didn't get into Edinburgh, was devastated, spent a whole year in Glasgow doing a portfolio course to reapply, but then decided not to apply to Edinburgh and applied to Dundee, almost the same portfolio, like I didn't do that many huge changes to it and I got in, so I would have got in the year before you know just like I think I was just a teenager and I was freaking out I was freaking out because I've never ever been before in my life i would never been in a position of having to like claw myself back um, from anything so I had to just like yeah and I, I got into art school and then told my dad that I made the application he didn't even know that I was applying to art school he wasn't even privy to any of that the art school application was like behind his back, so I was terrified. What was his reaction? I was so angry, was <laughs> screaming. <laughs> 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 but then I showed him my portfolio, and he was really moved and like actually crying and everything. I think he realised that like for the maybe the last two years he'd taken like this sharp U turn on me and like went from this person who'd like really encouraged me to do all of these creative things. And then when I did, I'm doing a creative thing, he didn't agree. But I think if I'd done music, if I'd like, if I'd said I want to be a musician, I think he would have been behind it. If I'd said I wanted to be a writer, then he would have probably been behind it. He didn't know anything about art, about visual art in the world of the art world in any capacity. Um, and I think it was also because in Zimbabwe, being a musician and being a writer are natural and well-respected art forms like to practice and to do as a career whereas art is a bit different it's not to say that it's not a well-respected thing in Zimbabwe but it just hasn't had the same uh, development over over the years as um, as arts has it's that's all changed now over the years but like my dad's generation—they had the Oliver Mtukudzi's and the, um, uh, you know, and the, the people who were well-known writer, uh, writers, and singers. So, you know, we have a really deep, rich um, legacy of, of, of people who work in those mediums. And then the only artists who were like well-known were the sculptors and the Zimbabwe sculptors, the Shauna sculptor, and they were mostly men. So it just didn't compute to him that I was suddenly wanting to do this thing that didn't that he hadn't seen like a, a black woman do before, um, as Zimbabwean women do before. So, he, but you, I think he was just scared for me. But you were, I
0: suppose, you were rebelling against the narrative that was almost designed for you, um, and and that's always hard to do, and you were in a territory that you're. You, your dad didn't recognize, and you're out by yourself. You talk about anxiety, of course. You, you, there's not many black female visual artist role models available for you to look at, and and so it was very understandable that, that you're kind of just by yourself, and you're sailing, and you're thinking, okay, where's this going to take me? And as a parent looking looking upon that, it's easier to look at a role that lots of people have trodden, or a route that a lot of people have trodden and say, follow that route. And you're like, no, I'm going to break the mould. And so you don't have to fit into what people think a black woman should look like or should be like.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, okay, so we've arrived... We've, <laughs> we've arrived at act two of today's programme. Act two, Entanglement. Um, I want to ask you, what does your life look like? just now, what, what are you working on and have you felt that being Black has stopped you or hindered you from getting to where you are?
1: Um. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one because uh, right now, I guess, from the outside, looking in at my practice, at my life, people might think I'm a very successful artist and I'm doing really great and um, and I think that's amazing that people think that and I'm really like you know I feel like the conversations I've had with people over the last couple of years has been people being like I've seen you're doing this and you're doing that and congratulations and people are really like quite um they're they're really encouraging of, of the things I'm doing and I've got a little bit of visibility in in Scottish art scene at the moment and it feels quite exciting but then at the same time quite a little bit stressful because obviously when you're like one of the only visible Black people in any field it just feels a little bit like...
0: you in the torch, you never can see it.
1: Yeah, um, but obviously the, the things that... Um, the natural things that all artists feel, like the imposter syndrome and all of that stuff, is still there, still underlying. So I do feel like even though it's it all might look all shiny at the top, but for me, like I'm kind of always quite like stressed out and freaking out about like one thing to the next. Um in terms of what I'm working on, I have several projects on at the moment. Because of the lockdown, everything got postponed to next year. So I technically have the same amount of work that I was supposed to be doing for this year, but it's all just been moved into 2021, which is an interesting feeling because in a sense, it's really good because it gives me lots of time and space to do my research and development and get these projects finished and, and, and probably to at a much higher standard than they would have been had I just had to trim them all out in the last couple of months, which was actually what was going to happen. Um, but at the same time it's like now i'm kind of there's now so much scope for what could possibly happen and and that's a really interesting place to be as an artist because um i think one of the scariest things for artists is when there's lots of opportunities or like lots of choices uh, to be made and because you could do anything do anything with all this time but I've already got a very clear picture of the things that I'm trying to do and I'm trying to stay on course with those things. So um, in April I would have been showing um, my work at street level photo works in Glasgow at Glasgow International Festival and um, that was going to be a two-person solo with a Kenyan artist called Alwarn Yango and it was basically facilitated and produced by Focus Scotland. So the exhibition was titled Body of Land and I actually made the work for Body of Land in 2018 after a year-long residency project. And it was like kind of collaborative between myself and our, but not, not collaborative in the actual work, but in the kind of research and development side of it. And um, yeah, I went to Kenya, went to Nairobi for a month-long residency um, as part of that project. And then um, our work came over to Glasgow and she went to street level and, and we both made our separate projects for the, for the, for the overall body plan project together. And so, um, yeah, that, that project has been something that I've been wanting to show to people for two years now. So having it under wraps and not being able to really show it has been quite difficult. Um, and then obviously with GI being postponed, that opportunity is like you know gone till next year now. Um, but we do have a talk coming up, um, on the 30th of June, um, on uh, Street Levels Facebook. It's maybe like a, a live, um, kind of version of it. And I will just be myself talking to our Peter Shah, who, who is one of the producers from uh, House, Scotland, about my, my art, my practice, everything so. That project, and then also another project was happening at the same time, um, also for Glasgow International Festival. So I was going to have two shows at Glasgow International Festival in April. One, the other one's called The Divine Sky, and it was going to be part of uh, another two-person solo with a South African artist called Tulane Uwashia. And it was going to be um, curated by um, a curator, an artist called Catherine Liu. And uh, it would have been at Studio Pavilion at House of Art Lovers. Um, so they were both supposed to be happening at the same time. I would, I think I would have been exhausted by the end with <laughs> 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 those two shows alone. Um, and then Stills, uh, the exhibition at Stills, which opened uh, last week as well. That was supposed to be happening in June. Of course, that's been postponed as well. Project 20, Stills. So, yeah. Yeah. I had like nothing for the, from January through to April, and then I had all my projects from April through to August, and then of the course.
0: And then Covid and lockdown <laughs> came along, and then, then you everything you've done and wanted to do. That's, that's annoying.
1: <laughs> it's really, really irritating. Um, but then at the same time, it's given me lots of space and scope to build those projects and other things. So Body Plan is still going to be shown as, as it was designed to be. Mm-hmm. because at the very, very end of that project, there's nothing more for me to really add to it. Um, that'll be shown next year at Glasgow International Festival. But The Divine Sky is still only kind of like processes being produced and, and developed into like something. So my plan for that is to, um, I was supposed to be taking pictures out in the Highlands for um, one of the series of images, but because of the lockdown, I ended up taking them in a the studio. So um I made all this fabric with like indigo dye pigments and um, and I used batik techniques as well and it was just really a beautiful process that I did during the lockdown. And then I made a series of photos for it. Um which I mean that's that's been done, that's wrapped up, that's ended up being shown as an online showcase for stills, and then I've also made a film. For the Divine Spy project as well, which is going to be shown at this other festival called Una Festival, and uh, what I'm planning to do with that project is to develop it into like a, like I'm going to go into the Scottish landscape in lots of different places. So because I've got all this time now, the plan is like to to go to venture out and take photos with the fabric and everything like that, doing performances out in the landscape. Um, I've never actually engaged with the Scottish landscape before and it seems a bit ridiculous as a photographer in Scotland not to. So I feel like it's important for me to do that um, at this stage. So that's something that I probably wouldn't, I probably would have just done the one location and shown the work at at Glasgow International and it still wasn't, that would have been it. But now I've decided to develop it into like many locations um, and kind of have, um, a through line of a storytelling sort of um, practice that runs through the project as well so I think there'll be a series of films that come along with it as well. You've taken this opportunity
0: to kind of focus on things you might have not otherwise had the opportunity to do so mm-hmm. and um, the number of stuff you're up to just makes me tired listening to you <laughs> like just the idea of, of, of doing all those things
1: is i'm also doing a podcast and i'm like running, doing another podcast and like i've been asked to do like a, a vlog series for pride magazine and nigerian uh, publication and yeah i'm part of a collective and so i'm always doing a million things and i kind of don't know how not to <laughs> so um yeah like i feel like In terms of the question around whether my race race has held me back, it definitely has made things a bit more difficult in certain ways. Um, Because it's, it's, it's always been, or it has before now, been difficult to get access to like funding or access to opportunities, because they weren't really as open for for people of colors, especially for Black people. I had an understanding that it was gonna to be tough for me, and it has been. Um, I've been snubbed for quite a lot of things, like awards that, like you know, I've applied for and things like that. Um, over and over and over again for the same work that is now being celebrated has been snubbed for awards and. Um, funding has never like been easy to, to, to get and things like that and um, when I was in art school like there was a definite like feeling of the tutors not maybe realizing what they were doing but there was just a kind of difference in the way that they were engaging with me and um, and I felt like I'm, a necessity to like make sure people understood what my work was about so I would like try and get all of them to, to come and do a tutorial with me so that they would all get to understand what my work was about. Because everyone's mis, misconstruing and misrepresenting my practice all the time because, you know... I suppose
0: you said you were there because a lot of black people talk about white people not understanding it or not getting it. Now, you're an artist on top of that. Sometimes people don't get other sometimes people don't get artists' vision. So you're coming at from a point where you're a minority and you're in a field that isn't, not necessarily open to minorities, but isn't littered with them. And you're trying to get them to get you, and then you're trying to get them to get your art. So it's, it's, a, it's two layers they're trying to break through, and that sounds like that's what you were going
1: through a little bit. Yeah, it was, it was awful in art school, because so I was the only black person there, and I just felt like I was constantly having to explain myself, and const- And I think that's what everyone has to do in art school, and people would probably say to me, but we all had to explain ourselves, but I'd be like, yeah, but there's something else going on there that even if I did explain, it was still considered to be that I was incorrect about what my work was about, because I was using myself in my work, so people were always assuming that my work was about race, but I was actually looking into um I was really interested in the hypnagogic state between sleep and waking, and I was just obsessed with like dream and the way that um the way that it kind of like affects your life. And 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 I've always had a, a very, very rich dream life. Um and I write down my dreams and I can lucid dream really well. It's something that I'm really, really um yeah, it's something that's very, very, very important to me. You know, I was just trying to make work about the hidden concrete state.
0: And you so, would use yourself in in your in your artwork. And so wait, when you use yourself in your artwork, they thought you were making a comment on race.
1: Yeah. But when I I I had used white um models in the work. Everyone understood what it was about. Okay. The same work. I mean, the same work. It wasn't like it was like being made in different years. My, my fourth year of work, I used myself in some of the images and I used a white model in other ones. And um I even, I mean, it was quite obvious. Like I had a bed in the center of the space and there was a projection of someone sleeping, like a restless sleeper. And there was like, you know, it, it looked. It looked like it was about dreams. It looked like it was about nightmares. Or like you know what I mean, it was quite obvious, but people still were like, "So this is about race." So, um, and with art school, I mean, like I said, I'm not particularly
0: creative, and I'm not in art school. How, how, how can you be right or wrong when you're speaking to someone who's demonstrating some work? So, for example. In most tests or exams, you 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 just when you when you um, when you handed an assignment, it's relatively easy to grade. How how does one grade that exhibition? For example, if they come in and they say this about race, and you say, well, no, it's nothing to do with race, it's about this. Mm-hmm. How, how how do they grade that? And how can they tell you no, you're wrong when it's you that you've imp- you've produced it, you you've curated it, you've developed it. And then you shown it, and they say, "No, that's not what it's about." How how can you even start to try and then assign a grade to that? How do they do that? I
1: think I think because art is subjective, it kind of goes above and beyond like our our own frame of reference of how to discover how to decide what it is that's going on. I think mean, it's actually a philosophical question. So like I would probably invoke like um, John Berger's ways of seeing for an answer to that. Like, they were only able to see what they were able to see. So um, they're looking at it through a a white supremacist lens, like where their view of me and my body automatically is an image of a subjugated subject. Uh, You know, like a, a, a subject that has been enslaved, a subject that has been colonized, a subject whose body is not their own. So they can't immediately the image that I'm putting forward has to be relating to that. Yeah. The white subject is just a person who's sleeping. The white subject is just a person existing in the frame, in the way that I put it. But myself in the subject in, 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 in the frame is 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 um, burdened with all these other ideas. And so it was. It was actually really important for me to have my work misconstrued, because then it made me look at my work deeper and look at the ways that the white gaze was affecting the way that it was being interpreted. Yeah. So, you know, in in many ways, as much as it was quite frustrating, they did me a good. Uh, they did me a service of like making me look deeper and do more research and do more learning and. Um, my understanding of my practice now is that i don't get to ch- i don't get to choose what people see but i can i have the power as the person who's deciding how things are framed to um to engage that gaze back so like i'm, I'm I, I don't know if you've noticed in my work i tend to look down the barrel of that lens like quite like earnestly at the audience because i'm asking them to look at the image but i'm looking at you too so don't like it's not just a one-way thing so there's an interplay there there's like a there's a reciprocity there and they need to be able to engage with it from that perspective as well i write a whole bunch of stuff about what my work is about um but i can't impose those ideas i actually want my work to be less about and um, less referential and more about feeling so if you feel something when you look at it then that's then I've done my job I don't really care what you think it is and yeah yeah.
0: art is an exchange rather than just an end product yeah and and I I get that I understand that and and some of your work I've, I've had a chance to have a look at and anyone listening if you get the chance you should you should definitely you should definitely go check it out and what we'll do at the end um, we'll tag in some links to, to your website. Now, I wanted to ask um, on your opinion on the climate at the moment. Obviously, the last few weeks have been intense, shall we say. Um, I, I've i had a lot of white friends messaging me asking lots of questions that they've never asked before. Um, and it's kind of been it's kind of been nice in one way, it's been a bit exhausting the other way, because I've been asked by so many white people about what's going on and and, and what I think and, and people come up to me and tell me what they think. Um, and so far everything I've had has been really positive and it's been really um, supportive. But what are your thoughts on how things are at the moment and and the state of play? And I'm not wanting to think too much about America because what's going on over there is so much, so divorced from what we experience over here. So just kind of being black in Scotland in the 21st century with the new climate and off the back of things like Grenfell and off the back of things like when Russia Regeneration and, and with the Black Lives Matter campaign and statues being torn down whether you grew growth or not, where where, where are you, where, where do you feel? What do you feel at the moment? I should ask.
1: Um. Okay. So for me, it's it's been quite exhausting too. Um. All the messages and the um, for some people, the sudden interest in trying to um engage this issue, um. I've been kind of um posting. Things about race, racism, feminist ideas, uh, ideas around like the um, yeah representation and things like that for a good decade now. So <laughs> I've been on social media and I've been using that space, especially on Facebook, um, to engage people in conversations around this, and um, so. It, it's funny, like my what I actually received a couple of weeks ago was a lot of messages from people thanking me for all the work I've done to like get them to get to the place where when this happened, they already knew what was up. So it, it, it was incredible. I was like, Jesus, so all that all that crap that I went through, like for years, I was arguing with people, debating with people. Sometimes I'd have like 90, over 100 comments, people like telling me that I would reverse racism and all this crap. And I literally went through that for years and years and years and years, all the way up to like even when Trump was being elected. I remember like the day that he was elected, I wrote, um, I put actually a a link up with statistics that showed that white people, white women, older white people, etc., had voted for this man and I was like I said this is a problem within that country in relation to racism this is a racist vote right obviously and there was like over 100 comments with people telling me that I was being racist towards white people and uh, you can't generalize against the whole entire race and I was like but wait hold on a minute I've been called black my whole life and I've been generalised about my whole life and i am not actually, I've not done anything to deserve any of that, but this is people putting their, their, their vote to someone whose beliefs are completely white supremacist. So there's a difference there between like me just minding my own business being black and white people making decisions that affect everybody, Right. And same thing with Brexit. Like I wasn't surprised when Brexit happened at all, because this—I've known this is a racist country my whole life because I've been experiencing racism my whole life. And so all the white people who were con- confused then, like when that happened, people were like, "I can't believe this is happening!" Like, of course it's happening, but they—you—you you can't see what you don't. What's not actually being. Put, put in your face you know like if you're never actually experiencing racism you don't know what it is you have no idea what it is so i've been putting forward my experiences explaining what had been happening to me for 10 years or so and people had been arguing with me about it but this time this whole situation made people realize like something something changed in people's thinking that made them realize actually all that stuff she's been saying all these years has been completely correct. And like, she must be exhausted. So, most people, like, I hope, like, you don't even have to reply. Like, people say, like, you don't even have to reply. Like, I just wanted you to, to know that I see you, I've heard you, I've heard you all this time. And I'm really sorry that, I, like, you know, and, and there's, I've actually had for maybe the last three, four years, a lot of white allies who have come on to like my comments and stuff like that and defended me on my behalf like essentially i would just be sitting there like and they, they're doing the work for me because they realize that it's actually important for them to engage other white people when they're being racist and um, so yes yeah, so like i've done a really good job of like explaining the situation to a lot of people but then at the same time i was really exhausted in general because the onslaught of positive messages on top of the onslaught of the negative news and I wasn't actually watching the news or anything. It's just there just in your face. There was no way of actually escaping it, especially because of the lockdown, there's nothing else to do that's but, but,
0: but now we don't actually have to watch the news. Like you said, the, the news and media is is thrust into your face. Mm-hmm. And I suppose for you though you were in a situation where you've been you've been having this debate and this argument and you've been getting a point, okay, and you keep on going, you've been championing it, championing it and then all of a sudden something changes in the zeitgeist and it's as if right okay everything she's been said and lots of people have had this outpouring mm-hmm. and I wonder if at the same time it's been a bit, of a, a bit of a relief for you where you've explained how exhausting even that process was and now everyone's here you can almost take a nap and say right I need a minute to recharge yeah uh, I do, do you wonder how long this is going to last and and this is my worry is that
1: I mean, less
0: trend at the moment, but it's only going to be for a moment, unfortunately, isn't it?
1: It's really irritating to be this aware of what what's happening. Um, we've been in this cycle of like um, really intense news cycles where um, something becomes the most important thing. Like in the world for everyone, right? And when that happens, everyone is just whipped up into a frenzy about this thing. And it's just been going on like that for years now. And I've been noticing it. Like, I, I can just, I, if something starts to pop up on my news feeds, like a lot, I'm like guarantee you that in the next couple of weeks, I won't be able to like see anything but that. And And, and because of the pandemic, it's even worse because it's like that should be the, the the thing that everyone's focusing their attention on, right? Because of what happened, you know, what happened to George Floyd and what happened in general and what whipped up all these protests, racism became, systemic racism became the thing that everybody had to focus on. Now, it was always something that everybody should be focusing on. It, it, it was the crisis that we were in before the pandemic hit. You know, like, so it's an interesting place to be when you're black and you know that this is actually the most important thing that nobody else cares about. And now it's suddenly being thought about and being put into everyone's, um, it's now in everyone's minds, at the forefront of everyone's minds. But it's starting to recede. I can see it already. I can see people starting to let up. They're like, okay, we don't have to talk about this anymore. We're, we're <laughs> We don't have to engage this anymore. Let's move on to the next thing. As black people, we are engaging it every day. And, you know, Ahmed Aubrey died in a terrible way, and nobody whipped up into a frenzy about that. And I was disgusted by that, because I felt like George Floyd's death was obviously horrendous, and it needed to be said that this was a terrible thing. But Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey and Tony Wade all died around the same time. And it just wasn't the same. We didn't come with the same energy for them. Um, and Grenfell, still to this day, we haven't, we haven't got the numbers. We don't know how many people actually died. Like We have their fake number, which doesn't make any sense we don't have like a proper investigation into it nothing has been done really and I feel like in the windrush, it's, it's just like we.
0: <laughs> there's just so many things that, keep, so on, many
1: things. that
0: they keep on coming on and and yes at the moment we have got the world's gaze but we know to, we, we know from experience that it's a and it's going to move on to the next thing and you're right this is this is a fight that needs to have been fought for a long time. And when we look around, there's so many things that we do need to focus more time on. And, and I suppose that kind of... The, the, this kind of tells us more about our society where we've got this almost duality where you need to sit on one side of something or the other. And it, everything just takes a turn. So whether it is the amount of plastic we produce, whether it's recycling, whether it's about... um feminism whether it's about racism whether there's xenophobia it's almost as if everything taking everything's taking its turn then you sit where are in one side and the other and then you can sift through people quite quickly and and it's all those in between parts where so there's people that live in each of those crises every day and have done so and it's not hearing about that and it's not thinking about that and
1: i mean my view you know. is actually that they're all entangled like there's like they're Every single one of these issues are like this. They're not, they're They're entangled together and they, um, they can't be separated off. There, there's no way of separating them off. And the reason why is if you look at the history, this is like actually like the most important thing that everybody needs to look at is history. You look at the history, you see the environmental crisis that we're in, you see... Systemic racism, you see, sexism, yeah. misogyny—all of it stems from the exact same place. The exact same mechanisms of power. It's the exact same philosophies. It's the—it's all the same stuff. If you if you actually take it right down to its bare bones, you get an answer as to where how we got to where we are right now. But people don't want to do that. They want to be like, well, that was then, this is now. But it's like the reason we're in this now is because of what happened then. And so, therefore, like you could deal with all of it, including the environmental stuff. The environmental crisis is a crisis that is is very embedded with race and racism, because the places that are going to be the most affected by uh, global warming are is the global south. It's the places that that have had their resources plundered and who have no access to, not access, no access, but limited access to the resources that they need to be able to withstand the environmental crisis. The Caribbean that has all of these natural disasters constantly happening, these hurricanes, these, you know, these tsunamis, these tornadoes, this is happening year in, year out in the Caribbean. Everybody just ignores it. Like, a friend of mine, Alberta Whistle, has made incredible films that locate all of it together. Like, she pulls it all together for you in, like, a, a you know, like, a 20-minute long film. It's like, in, in, in Transatlantic Slave Trade, Industrial Revolution, <laughs> you know, like, it's all there. It's all laid out for you. Um, and, and that's what I love about art. I love the fact that you can point to things and you can pull things together that most people wouldn't actually be able to see as being, in, 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 in some way, um, connected. Um, that's the great thing that art does like for society. It's like, look at this. This is actually what's going on. This is the bigger picture. Um, whereas everybody wants to take things as separate and then we'll tackle racism just now. Really? tackle sexism just now. And funnily enough, Even when I was, while the the nice messages and stuff were coming in, I was also getting phone calls from, like, the BBC and stuff. Oh, we'd love you to talk about this. We'd love to talk about this. I never really get asked to come on and talk about, like, arts. I get asked to come in and talk about race all the time. And one of the programs that I was on, like, they were talking about, oh, what if we, like, have, um, do you think it'd be okay for us to bring on someone from the Asian community to have a conversation around this about systemic racism do you think it's okay for us since we've done one episode like last week can we do a, a, the next episode for me? do you think it would make sense and i was like this is it isn't it, you, want it fun. you don't even have the capacity to like concentrate right now on the specifics of how black people are, are, are treated in this country this black and minority ethnic stamp that we're all being put under like this this model that we've being put under is not fit for purpose it's not adequate it doesn't make sense because we're not experiencing the same things and it doesn't take into account the anti-blackness within the other um ethnic groups in this country it doesn't take into account um the the fact that the there. There's something else that needs to be said before we go there. And I think that we have a Black History Month. I think we should have an Asian History Month as well. I don't actually understand how they get amalgamated into one. And I know that it comes from a, a history where, of, of us doing that because of the notion of this political Blackness. But I think we've really moved on from there. And I think that Asian people need to have spaces to discuss the ways that they're treated in this country. But they shouldn't be in the same space as the way that we're treated in this country. You know, so there's a lot. It's ah uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And I get quite um, I'm still exhausted despite the fact that, you know, you're saying maybe you can take a rest. Like I can't, because I'm also part of a black community that I'm trying to like um, you know, be be involved in in in, in the Complex conversations that we're having—we're having much, much more complex conversations than the white people are having about
0: this stuff. Because well, we, have to. yeah, because it's because it's a daily reality, and and that's something that some white people may understand or think they understand or trying to attempt to understand, and some people might not. But you don't you don't get to just turn off because when you do, something's going to hurtle towards you, and remind you of. Of the problems,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so we've come to the final act of our show, Act Three: Invocation. So I want to look to the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I I want to look to the future, and I want to ask for your advice. What do you think is going? What do you think the future? What lies in the future for Black people in in Scotland? I think it's hard to answer that question for everyone in the UK. From your experiences,
1: I think that we're in a really incredible moment right now, and that if we can sustain—that's the most important thing—if we can sustain the momentum that we have right now, um, things will change for us. Like you know, they've changed in my lifetime. My sister, like I said, experienced a lot more racism than I have. The incremental difference of like it going from being direct and very aggressive racism to being more microaggressions—it's not a huge, huge change, but it's like it did affect the way that I saw the world, you know, versus the way that my sisters had to see the world. And and in that ten-year gap, there's also a ten-year gap between myself and my niece, and like her experiences are. are are slightly different from mine as well and it's like with each generation i'm hoping that we get closer and closer to a place where it's it becomes so it, not even a thing of the past because i don't think it ever will until the country addresses its history and its legacies of slavery and colonialism it can't but we're getting to a place where we can move through the world and we can we find we're finding each other as well we're building community with one another we're building safe spaces where we can discuss these things and then because of some of us getting into places where we've, we've become kind of successful in our fields, um, we're present, we're representing, we're like, there's not just one black artist in Scotland, there's many black artists in Scotland that we are now, we're connecting with each other and we're making ourselves visible as, a, as, as collectives and as groups. And, and there's no denying now that we're here. There's no denying that we are making positive changes, but it also needs to come from the top. So like the organizations, institutions that make decisions about you know the cultural sector and things like that, they need to have more people of color. They need to have more black people in the boards, in the, in the decision-making rooms. Like there's no reason why that can't happen. But until that changes, it's very difficult to say that this is sustainable. Like we, we could have a really amazing like next decade of like you know very highly visible in um, um, production of 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 in media and in film and art and everything. Like, but we won't actually see this become a, a something that's fundamentally going to change the country until the people talk start making changes, you know? Like,
0: in terms of the government... Yeah, representation is... is um, a word that people like to use at the moment. So I think it's quite popular and it makes me laugh most of the time. Representation is not having one person or any miscellaneous <laughs> in culture in a board with a hundred other people who are all white and British. That's not representation. But... At the same time, in Scotland the there's I think 96% white, and some people may argue that representation would be having 96%, 96 black white people, and maybe one black person, one Indian Asian person, one oriental person, and then on a Wednesday a cleaner who's everything else. And, and that might be proportional representation but the issue is with that argument and I feel this is I feel this quite passionately is that when you have had people living in a country for hundreds of years that have been ignored and then over the last fifty, sixty years have been acknowledged but negatively you need more than just one person to stand up against it because they're not just standing up against those 96 people they're standing up against each of those people that have sat in those seats for the last how many years and that's what people don't understand and hopefully representation starts to come in because you need so much more representation to be heard just because the 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 swing is so far adjusted yeah
1: i mean it's it's a massive massive time, and also because like you know as we know, Scotland has aspirations for independence, and, and if we were to achieve that, we need to have uh, uh, systemic racism has to be something that we're not going to take into an independent Scotland, and it's not looking like that's possible at the moment. It looks like it it, it looks like if Scotland was to become independent, it would just be like any other, you know, northern. Or like you know, a great country, and um, where it pays lip service to dealing with, um, with with the race and racism, but it doesn't actually do so in 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 these fundamental structural ways that have have to that have to be undertaken. Like I think this whole thing about change the curriculum. Do you know how long that's going to take? <laughs> It's, it's in that process of changing the curriculum. You need to also be... Um, all of the media and broadcasting companies also have to engage that. So the curriculum in schools has to change, but adults have to also be retrained and re- re- um, uh, re-educated. Like, so we need to find ways to educate adults too. Every industry, every every workplace has to also engage with this. But it's funny because there is a race equality framework. It does exist and it has existed for quite some time. And all of these organisations know exactly what they're supposed to do, but they just don't necessarily implement it. So I do think that, um, yeah, people like to talk, but they don't like to actually make the steps that need to be made. And I do actually feel like because I'm a creative, because I'm an artist and I know the great things that, that we're doing as as black creatives in Scotland. I'm really excited right now, and I'm really excited for the future because of what we're doing. But like I say, it needs to be sustainable. And we can't have it be like, you know, um, maybe like 10, 15 years down the line, a young kid is looking like, oh, I'm I'm interested in doing art, and they can't find my work anywhere. You know, they can still only find Maud Seltzer because my work hasn't been archived properly. Um, And there's been no one to follow since you. There's been no one to follow since me. And I'm not just talking about me as just the only person, but if if, if I was to be an example um, that they could look to, if I'm not visible to them, if I'm not easily accessible to them, then I didn't exist. And that's literally what's happened for for me and my generation. We had Maud Salter, and that was was it. And... Incredible artist, but it's um, it's ridiculous that she's had to be the only person that any of us could look to. Yeah,
0: the um, our our system. I don't think the word "broken" is fair, but it doesn't it doesn't quite acknowledge all the things that we have to go through. And I suppose no system can can be completely inclusive of everything. But at least try to 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 be inclusive, at least try to bring in as many people and have that debate and having that discourse. It's the only chance you're gonna have. And I and I don't think black people, people who are of colour, no matter to where they come from, are necessarily expecting everything to work for them and all sizes fits all. But have a debate, have it open, be frank, be honest, and then maybe there's a chance, potentially, that we can start to make steps to getting it right. I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you very much for speaking with us, Um, first guest, and um, even eloquent, charming, engaging, and I can ask for anything more.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been really lovely chatting to you today. And like, yeah, even just before we started recording, just felt like just knowing each other for ages. (laughs) So it's been really lovely. Um, so thanks so much for having me on and being your first guest as well, it's quite exciting. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will speak to you soon. You take care.